When I was first starting in ministry, I was starting as a youth pastor, and there was a man who had been involved in ministry for a lot of years who took the time to mentor me. And one of the things that I appreciated most about him is that I would come to him with a question that I thought was pretty simple and pretty straightforward, maybe like, hey, you know, what do you think I should use as uh, the next series that I'll go through with the students? Or how should I approach this text? Or do you have any tips on doing s'mores with the students? Because I've always found that it just makes a mess everywhere and you get marshmallows all over the place. Do you have any good ideas for that? I'd ask him a simple, straightforward question like that, and he would always take that question and ask me some questions back. And before I knew it, we were talking about something much deeper, much more significant, much more applicable, and at the end of the day, much more important than I had originally thought about. He took a question about how should I deal with a specific passage or how do you make s'mores without getting marshmallow all over the place? And he would turn it into a question of where's your soul at? Or uh, are you really being filled with the Holy Spirit as you live out your ministry? And I would just be like, how did we get here? But that's where I needed to be and I appreciated him so much for it. Have you ever been in situations like that? where somebody has the skill to take what seems like a simple question and to take it and weave it back and forth in your life until they uh, put their finger on something that you weren't asking, but that you should have been asking. And they give you an answer that you weren't looking for, but that you really needed. You been there before? I appreciate the text that we're looking at this morning because that's exactly what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and chapters 9. So let's turn there, if you would, with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, no shame at all. Seriously, we're not going to look at you and laugh or anything like that, but we've got some in the back, so feel free to get up and go grab one. Or if you want to be more discreet, you can just pull your smartphone out, BibleGateway.com. That'll get you there as well. 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Paul was basically a traveling preacher. It's a letter that he wrote to a church in a city called Corinth. Corinth is in southern Greece. It's about 50 miles west of Athens. And as you can see, 1 Corinthians is like 90, 95% of the way through the Bible. So if you've got your Bible, it's toward the back. We're going to be talking about chapters and verses Chapters are the big numbers, verses are the little numbers in superscript, just to make sure that everybody um, knows where we're at as we're talking through this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is talking about a question that the church in Corinth had asked him in a letter. Uh, If you look back for a second to chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now for for the matters you wrote about. And basically what had happened in the first six chapters of the letter, Paul is talking about these theological concepts, and he's telling the Corinthians things that he wants them to know. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul kind of shifts gears. And I I think it's possible that Paul even had this letter from the Corinthians in front of him as he is writing a letter back to them. And he says, okay, you had some questions for me for the matters you wrote about. Let me answer your questions. And he's answering one question in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, he starts in on another question. That's why it says, now about food sacrificed to idols. Food sacrificed to idols. This is a question that's going to require a little bit of unpacking for us this morning. So let's talk some about the world in Corinth that Paul was writing to and what this whole idea of food sacrificed to idols looked like. 
The good news is that Paul gives us some information right here in the book to figure out what he's talking about. So if you look at um, verse 4 of chapter 8, he's talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. There are a couple of different contexts that this could happen where believers in Corinth might have opportunity to partake of food that had been sacrificed to idols. The first context you see is, if you look down at verse 10 of chapter 8, Paul says, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all of your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. So temples weren't just a place where sacrifices was made, were made and worship was offered to pagan deities, but temples kind of doubled as like a restaurant, okay? So maybe you had an altar and like a slaughtering place over here, and then you'd have a barbecue pit and a restaurant over here. And people would use temples as gathering places to eat meals together. Just like today, temples or restaurants aren't the only place that people are eating. If you flipped over to verse 10, you would see, or chapter 10, you would see in chapter 10 that people were also had the opportunity to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols in each other's homes. So there were two contexts where this question of eating meat sacrificed to idols could come up in the life of a believer from the church at Corinth. One would be in an invitation to join a party at a pagan temple where that meat was being served, and another would be in an invitation to go to somebody's house and basically have a barbecue. Now, I know what some of you out there are thinking right now. I can read your minds. You're thinking, okay, what is Brent going to talk about for the next hour and a half? Because, okay, some of you laughed and got that. Uh, Because eating meat sacrificed to idols might have been something going on in Corinth 2,000 years ago, but that's not exactly a part of our everyday experience here in Baxter in 2011. So how does this apply to us? What does it matter? Great question. I'm glad you're asking that. Um, you know, you, you think about our lives, and the only thing with any real religious connotation in my pantry is probably kosher salt, right? And since I put that kosher salt on pork before I grill it, The fact that it's kosher kind of gets negated, I think. Um, But let's just imagine for a second a world where idle meat was common. Let's try to get a sense of what it would feel like to be asking this question of, hey, hey, Paul, can can I eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? Is that okay or is that not okay? What do I need to do with this, Paul? Anybody had that really good stone fire naan from Costco? You know what I'm talking about? It comes in like an 87 pack because it's Costco, and it's like these little rounds of bread, and you put it in the toaster oven for a minute or two, and it comes out, and it's just like soft and a little bit sweet and delicious and wonderful. Yeah? Um, naan is, uh, originates from India. So what would happen if the next time you went to Costco to pick up your 87 pack of stone fire naan, you looked at the package, and it said... Blessed in Hindu temples by Annapurna, the goddess of baking. Would you pause for a second? Would you say, wait a second, um, shoot, I really like this stuff, it's delicious. Uh, but I don't, I love Jesus, I don't want to have anything to do with idols, now what do I do? Or let's take it a step further, 
And let's imagine for a second that there were operating pagan temples that sacrificed cows and pigs and all the rest. So they had to do something with that meat when it was done being sacrificed because they didn't burn all of it up on the altar. So what they did with it is they sold it, you know, like any other meat. And you could go to Walmart and you could get some 80-20 ground beef and you had two options. And it was in the same packaging and it was essentially the same meat, but one option had been involved in these pagan sacrifices and was like $3.29 a pound. And the other option hadn't, and it was like $7.89 a pound. Now you're looking at it saying, oh, shoot. Once again, I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. I don't want to have anything to do with these pagan idols. But uh, my food budget says that one's going to be a better option. Yeah, it's removed from our daily experience. But if we imagine those situations, we can imagine why the church in Corinth is saying, hey, Paul, we don't know what to do about this. And Paul answers their question. But I'm grateful that Paul goes beyond their question to answer the question that they weren't asking because I need to hear, we need to hear the answer to the question that they weren't asking. And the question that they weren't asking, but the one that matters for us this morning is this. Does being right overcome being unloving? Is it okay to be unloving if I know I'm right? Paul answered that question. And the answer is this. Love always trumps knowledge. Love trumps knowledge. Let's walk through chapter 8 and see where this is coming from. I want you to know this is coming from Scripture, not just from me. So in chapter 8, we see exactly how Paul is laying this out for the Corinthians and for us. He doesn't waste any time. He begins to hammer his point home right away in the first three verses. He gets right to it in the first verse, right after he says, hey, let's talk about that question you had. He says, we, all, we know that, quote, we all possess knowledge. When Paul is quoting here and saying we all possess knowledge, it's likely that he's actually quoting back to the church at Corinth a part of the letter that they wrote to him. So he's saying, look, you guys know this. We all know this. We know stuff. We all know some stuff, right? And right after he acknowledges that, he says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. You think about something for a second that's puffed up. What is it? It's essentially full of a lot of air, right? I think about puffed rice cereal, Rice Krispies. I don't know how they make that stuff, but I know at the end of the day, it's basically rice and air. They just take some rice, make it bigger, and then they call it cereal. Uh, You think about a balloon that gets blown up, that gets puffed up. A balloon starts out small, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as you put air into it. It's taking up more space, but it doesn't necessarily have any more substance. Its size isn't indicative anymore of how much substance, how much value or worth it has to it because it's just puffed up. A balloon might take up a lot of space, but there's nothing really there. Paul is using this idea of being puffed up as being full of pride, full of arrogance, overestimating one's own importance. 
And that's where knowledge by, its, by itself always leads to. Leads to pride. Leads to arrogance. It leads to taking up more space than we really have substance for. But love, on the other hand, love doesn't just puff up, love builds up. Love is what causes something to increase, not only in size, but in substance, in character, in goodness, and in capacity to serve God's purposes. Love is what Paul is driving home right away in the second verse, and love trumps knowledge. Paul describes this a little bit differently uh, in verse 2 when he says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. It's a little bit of an interesting turn of phrase. I think the best way to understand this is that Paul is talking about those people who are really good at giving out the right answer in the wrong way. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody who comes in and says something absolutely correct. You can't argue with the facts, but they do so at a time when the facts aren't really what's called for. It's when the right answer is the wrong thing to say. You see, the truth is this. The most important thing about our walk with Christ, isn't the knowledge that we have acquired. It's being able to live out that knowledge in our lives to love God and love others well. If your only concern is to have the right answer to a question of faith, you're missing it. That's why Paul says those who think they know something don't really know what they think they know. He's talking about those who possess knowledge for its own sake, not the sake of loving other people and of loving God. Love trumps knowledge. Not just love of other people, but Paul makes it clear in verse 3, love of God as well. And it's interesting in verse 3 because he, he makes his point plain, but at the same time he throws a little twist in there. He says, but whoever loves God... And we would expect him here to say, because of where his argument has been going, we would expect him to say, perhaps, whoever loves God knows God. And he would equate our knowledge of God, not with just facts, but with our love of him. But instead, he flips it, and he said, whoever loves God, not knows God, but is known by God. Paul is making the knowledge of God something passive, something that we as humans don't possess, but something that we experience. We don't possess us knowing God. We experience him knowing us. It begins with God. It begins with God. Paul's getting to the truth that God is the initiator. We love because he first loved us. We're not grabbing onto God by loving him as much as our love of God reveals the fact that he knows us. So it's not about us knowing him. It's about him knowing us and the gratitude we can have for that and the love we show for him because of it. So right away at the outset, these first three verses, Paul lays out the fact that love trumps knowledge. And he goes on to say, now he goes on to actually answer this question, to address more directly the question that the Corinthian church was asking. And his answer to the question is that at the end of the day, in and of itself, go ahead, eat the meat offered to idols. 
In verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out from the Old Testament that there's only one God and that any so-called gods are non-entities. At the same time, in verses 5 and 6, Paul really beautifully lays out this picture of the deity and the lordship of Christ. It's a couple of verses I would love to unpack, but we don't have time, so we're going to keep going. Um, But it's really beautiful, and you should look at it later on. Um, There's only one God, Paul says. And because of that, any food offered to an idol is really offered to nothing at all. And since it's offered to nothing at all, eating it is of no real consequence. He concludes in verse 8 that food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Think about that for a minute. I know it's a little far-fetched, but imagine an idol, uh, a temple down the street where they were actively sacrificing to pagan gods and pagan idols. And what Paul is saying is that in and of itself, walking into that temple and having a cheeseburger is not a problem for the faith. We have great freedom in Christ don't we? And that's something that we can know. The right answer to this question of, can we eat pagan idol meat for the Corinthians from Paul is, yeah, go for it. If you're loving, as you're loving. Paul is giving them knowledge, but at the same time, he's saying the knowledge isn't what's important. But let's also remember that because Paul is giving the knowledge, as he is giving the knowledge, he is also reminding uh, the Corinthians that while knowledge is not primary, neither is it unimportant. Paul is not anti-knowledge. He's not advocating an attitude here that says, it's not about what you know. He's writing his letter because there are things that are imperative that the Corinthian church does know. There are things that they're getting wrong intellectually, factually, and they need to get it right. He's writing to teach them and correct them. Paul's a student of the scriptures, and he quotes the Old Testament all the time. He himself is extremely knowledgeable. Paul isn't isn't saying that knowledge doesn't matter. He's not excusing ignorance of biblical truths. He's just saying that knowledge isn't primary. He's commanding us to keep knowledge in its appropriate context in order that we can keep it from being destructive to ourselves and to others. So two ways this morning that we can keep knowledge in its appropriate context. First thing that we need to do We need to ensure that our knowledge is always constrained by our love. If knowledge about who God is and what God says is not exceeded by our love for who God loves, we will hurt others and we will dishonor God. We have to listen. I I have to listen here to what Paul is saying. He's saying that being intellectually correct without corresponding love for people is not a sign of maturity and it's not godly. In a couple of chapters, in chapter 13, Paul's going to go on to say, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but do not have love, I am nothing. Intellectual knowledge is not the primary goal of the Christian faith. Our knowledge must be constrained by love. Let's be honest for a minute. This is hard. It's not easy. To ensure that our love always exceeds our knowledge. 
at least it's hard for me, right? Knowing this book is a high value for us as a church. Gaining extensive knowledge of God through dedication to his word, through study of what other believers have written and taught, and years of personal experience is something that, in general, we view with great favor, right? And compared with learning to love people, acquiring facts is relatively easy. So here's what happens. We gain all this knowledge, And other people look up to us because we know stuff. And then the temptation is to use our knowledge not to love others, but to prove that we are right and we're better than them. The German theologian Helmut Thielke, in his book, A Little Exercise for Young Theologians, puts it this way. He says, truth seduces us very easily into a kind of joy of possession. I have comprehended this and that, learned it, understood it. Knowledge is power. I am therefore more than the other man who does not know this and that. But love is the opposite of the will to possess. It is self-giving. It boasteth not itself, but humbleth itself. Yes, Lakewood, let's learn about God. Let's study his word. Let's increase in knowledge. But let's take great care that our knowledge does not exceed our love. You see, unlike just getting more knowledge, the work of loving others well requires repentance, requires heart change, requires viewing others more highly than yourself and a willingness to die to yourself. And more often than not, the work of love happens not where it is seen, but where it is hidden. So we don't get credit for it. Love trumps knowledge. Let's work hard to make sure that our knowledge is constrained by our love. Second thing we have to do to keep knowledge in its appropriate context is to apply it at the right time in the right way. You've all been to funerals before where somebody says something that is biblically or theologically not true. It doesn't mean, though, that let's say you're at a funeral for a child and an anguished parent says, I I guess God needed another angel. It doesn't mean that that's the right time to come in and say, well, actually, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Obviously, you're not since you just something contrary to it. But biblically and theologically, the statement that God needed another angel is just totally incorrect. The doctrine of the aseity of God means that he is self-sufficient and needs nothing. Well, Hebrews, blah, 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 blah. That's the wrong thing to do. And far from showing knowledge and spiritual depth, Only an immature, ignorant person would respond in such an unloving way. The problem is, though perhaps not that blatant, I've done that. You've probably done that. Brought your knowledge to bear at a time when the right answer is not what was called for. If our knowledge isn't matched with discernment, 
of knowing how to love others, our knowledge will do much more harm than it does good. We have to learn not only the facts, but how to apply those facts at the right time, in the right way, so that we can love others and honor God. One of the beautiful things about this letter is that Paul is clear. He's not asking the church at Corinth to do anything that he hasn't done. As he concludes his instructions on eating meat in verse 13 of chapter 8, he says, look, I'll be a vegetarian if that's what it takes to properly love the weaker brothers and sisters at Corinth. And that pushes him right to his next point, the question that he starts to address in chapter 9, the question that the Corinthians had for him about his own role as an apostle. Apparently, there were some who were questioning his authority and his authenticity as a preacher of God's word because he worked with his hands and he didn't demand any support from the church that he ministered to. Now, to better understand this question, uh, let's think about Paul not so much as a pastor, as a missionary. When we send a missionary out to Mombasa or to some other part of the world where Christ is not known, what are we asking them to do? We're asking them to go and to declare the gospel, to go where a church does not exist and to begin a church, to go to people who don't know Jesus and say, hey, I know you don't know this, but you experience all the brokenness of life, all the pain, all the death, all the hurt. And you're not sure why life is like that because you know somewhere that it shouldn't be like that. It's like that because we sin. And when we sin, we incur pain and death and brokenness upon us and we cause it in other people. But God loved us enough to send an answer. He sent his son, Jesus. So why don't you follow him and find life? That's what we're telling missionaries to go do, right? Now, here's what we don't want them to do. We don't want them to give that message and then say, hey, could you pay for my plane ticket? Because I had to get here somehow, and I charged it on my credit card, and and I'm kind of hungry. Could you also give me some food and a place to eat? We understand that the work of spreading the gospel should be resourced by people who have the gospel, not by people who need it. And Paul was living that out. He was spreading the gospel amongst the people in Corinth. He started a church there where there was not a church, and he did so on his own dime because he knew that there was the chance that asking for financial support from the church at Corinth could hinder the work of the gospel, and he couldn't bear that thought. But the catch is this. In, uh, in Corinth... There was an expectation that if a teacher was any good, they would require payment for their teaching. So people are looking at Paul and they're saying, hey, what's up with this guy? He doesn't ask us to pay him. In fact, he's spending all this time in menial labor, which no self-respecting teacher should do. So he must not be very good. He's probably not even really an apostle. So Paul's working for his own support so that he could spread the gospel without any hindrance kind of backfired on him. So as we begin chapter 9, Paul starts off with the groundwork that he is, in fact, an apostle. The Corinthians are looking at him, and they're saying, hey, you don't make us pay you, so do you really even know what you're talking about? And Paul says, yes, I do know what I'm talking about. I've seen Jesus. Hey, church in Corinth, have you seen Jesus? And then he says, oh, by the way, church in Corinth, you're a church that's in Corinth that wasn't there when I got there. And the whole work of an apostle 
is to go out and to spread the gospel so that churches exist where they didn't exist before. So if you weren't there, then I wouldn't be an apostle. He said, that's where he's saying, you are the seal of my apostleship. Looking at yourselves means that, yes, I'm an apostle. Then Paul takes the next 10 verses or so to lay out a number of arguments that all point to the fact that those who do the work of the gospel have every right to be paid for their work. In verses 4 to 6, he points around all the rest of the natural order, and he says, if you're a farmer, if you're a soldier, you take a share uh, from your labor. In verses 7 and 8, he says... um, I'm sorry, in verses 4 to 6, he he looks at the other apostles, and he says they are all supported by the work. In verses 7 and 8, he takes a look at the rest of the natural order and the rest of the economic order, and he says, hey, this applies everywhere else. In verse 9, he shifts gears, and he looks at the Old Testament, and he recognizes that this verse about oxen in the Old Testament says more than it really says on its face, and doesn't just apply to animals, but it applies to humans as well. Uh, In verse 12, he says to the Corinthians, look, you're supporting other people. It makes sense that you would support me as well. In verse 13, he points to others in religious service who receive what they need from their labor. And then, to cap it all off, in verse 14, as if the other four arguments that he made weren't enough, in verse 14, he picks up his mic and he says, oh yeah, and Jesus said so. And then, he drops the mic. And he lays out conclusively that he does, in fact, have the right to financial support from the Corinthians for his work. But here's the thing. Even as he's making these, this point, even as he's laying out this solid argument that he has the right to receive financial support for his work of the gospel, even in the midst of that, he's laying down his rights. Because the gospel trumps our rights. The gospel trumps our rights. Second half of verse 12 of chapter 9 says this. Paul is speaking and he says, But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. The gospel is of utmost importance to Paul. He knew that there was a chance that if he chose to hold on fast to the right that he had to receive financial support from the church in Corinth, that the gospel would be hindered, and he couldn't stand that. So he says, I'll give up that right, because I would rather put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. You know, that's the kind of thing that sounds really good, doesn't it? Yeah, the gospel trumps our rights. All right, good. We can all nod our heads. We can all agree. We can all say, Paul did it. I'm going to do it too. That's what we need to do. Let's dig into that for a moment, though. What did it mean for Paul to say, we put up with anything? We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What did it look like for Paul What does it look like for us to not avail ourselves of the rights that we have? That starts to get a little uncomfortable. Gets a little uncomfortable because laying down our rights is contrary to everything else around us. It's contrary to everything that we hear in our world. It's contrary to everything that we've grown up with and are familiar with. Let's take an example, some documents we hold dear as Americans. 
Declaration of Independence, right? Kind of kicked it all off. Second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, you've probably heard it once or twice before. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Another important document, the Constitution. What's one of our favorite parts of that, perhaps? The Bill of Rights. Now, I don't say this to try to pick on our country. We've got a great country. Bill of Rights is a good thing. But what I am trying to do is point out to us that declaring and delineating and fighting for those things that we are entitled to, those things that we believe we are morally due, is easy and is comfortable. It's woven into the fabric of who we are. Now, willingly setting those things aside and giving up our rights for something greater does not come easily. It's not because we're Americans, though, frankly, our culture continually points us in the direction of grabbing on tight to our rights and fighting for our rights rather than letting them go. It's because we're sinners. And ever since Adam and Eve chose to sin against God and go their own way in the garden, our hearts as humanity have been broken and bent, not towards finding the fulfillment that we are made for in loving others, but instead we've been turned inwards on fighting for ourselves, declaring this is mine and you can't take it. Fighting for our rights comes naturally because putting ourselves above God and above others comes naturally. And setting them aside does not come naturally, and it comes at a price. Paul choosing not to receive financial support from the Corinthians wasn't just a theoretical decision. It meant that he spent a lot of time with needle and thread paying his own way. Oh, and by the way, this wasn't the only time that Paul decided to forego his rights for the sake of the gospel. And most of the other time that he forewent his rights for the sake of the gospel, it meant that he was being beaten or imprisoned or shipwrecked. Paul gave up a lot for the gospel. What will giving up your rights cost you? What will being willing to lay our rights aside cost us? Here's the thing we need to hear this morning, Lakewood. Whatever it costs us, whatever price we have to pay, it's worth it. It's worth it. Whatever it costs to love others well, whatever it costs to put the gospel ahead of our rights, it's not too high a price to pay because loving others and giving up our rights is part and parcel of the gospel. You see, the gospel is this amazing truth that Jesus gave up his home with the Father, his place in glory, in order that he would come down to us and live a perfect life as an example to us. Not only living a perfect life so that he could take our punishment, but living a life as an example. And what was Jesus' life from beginning to end if it wasn't a picture of laying down his rights? Are we willing to follow in his steps? He tells us, Scripture tells us again and again and again, Lakewood, that it's worth it. 
It's worth it to let the gospel trump our rights. It's worth it to lay down those things that we're entitled to for something greater than ourselves. It's worth it. Look back at me with a minute for cha- at chapter 8, verse 6. Paul writes, there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. You want to talk about being entitled to something for a second? Who's entitled to something if it's not Jesus, the one who made everything? He has rights to all of creation, all of the cosmos. By rights, it is his to do with as he pleases. Nothing is off limits for him. But now let's fast forward for a second and look at verse 11 of chapter 8. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died. Uh, can, can become so common to us, can't it? That Jesus Christ died. We hear it again and again and again, and it becomes familiar, and we don't stop and think about the fact that he not only took our pain and, our broken, and walked in our brokenness, but he died for us. And in so doing, he gave up his rights. And he calls us to do the same. Let's do it. Let's be willing to do it. Let's be willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. Just like it did for Paul, giving up our rights will come at a cost. There are times when it will hurt, but there's something far greater than ourselves and our rights at stake. The gospel is life for those who are perishing. And as we choose choose to lay down our rights, we'll find a life richer than we dreamed We'll find a liberty more complete than we can imagine. And we'll find, finally, the type of happiness that we were made for. It's a trade worth making.